My name is Rick Kleffel, and welcome to the show. Our guest today is David Corbett, author of The Devil's Redhead and Done for a Dime. While you're likely to find them shelves with the mystery, there are much, much more. Corbett spent nearly 15 years as a senior operative in a prominent San Francisco private investigation firm working on cases that included the Lincoln Savings and Loan scandal and the People's Temple trial. But he brings more than gritty authenticity to his novels. He deliberately skirts the conventions of genre and creates characters that are as complex as the mean streets they walk. Welcome to Fine Print, David. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rick. Nice to be here. David, you wanted to become a writer from the beginning, didn't you? I uh, Yes. Actually, when I began my career as a PI, I had already begun writing short stories. And when uh, a friend of mine recommended that I join the firm, he did so saying, you'll never get better material than this. And I think that was a vast understatement. Did you sell your stories? Um, I had one published in a, oh, they were a literary journal variety. Uh, let's just say that my writing style has certainly changed given the experience of the PI work. Yes, you did take a detour into private detection. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I had been working as a paralegal in, uh, for a major law firm in San Francisco and had been taking acting lessons, and which were really quite formative in my, my writing style. I was very, very influenced by both Arthur Miller and Harold Pinter. But I realized that uh, I would have more control over my career as a writer than an actor, which is why I began to turn toward writing. And uh, at that same time, two friends of mine had been working with this PI firm in San Francisco. Uh, one had been a stringer, and that's a person who just picks up odd tasks for the, uh, for the agency, usually surveillance work or process service. And then uh, my other friend had been the receptionist. And with their uh, intro, I still had to fight for nine months to get a job. But once I got it, they were, they were pleased, and I was energized by the job. I ended up just loving it. And I just decided, you know, this is going to be it. This will be my years at sea. And uh, whatever uh, I come away with will be the stuff I write about for the rest of my life. And that's pretty much been very true. Now, tell us about some of your most memorable cases. The SNL scandal, the People's Temple trial. Uh, to be honest with you, the Lincoln Savings and Loan case was an absolute snooze. We had been hired by the insurance company representing the officers and directors. And so I was talking to a lot of USC grads in their mid-20s who'd been pushing these bonds that weren't insured, and they, and they promised me up and down, oh, we told everybody that you know, they were insured, and these people just wanted their returns. They would glaze over and not listen to us. And that was every single interview, and it was you know, in such beautiful spots as Tustin <laughs> and San Dimas that I was, you know, so it was a pretty forgettable case. The People's Temple trial was probably the most agonizing case I'd worked on. These people who had been in the uh, the temple, were really from the, the lower echelon socioeconomically. They'd been true believers in, in a, which was a church then, and it became a cult, but they were true believers that this was really going to make a radical change in the world, and it was going to be for the good. And then, of course, it got shanghaied, and uh, a lot of them got taken down to, to Guyana by Jones, who became increasingly paranoid and dependent on drugs, in particular methamphetamine when he was down there, became more and more delusional, um, and more afraid that uh, such entities as the CIA and the FBI and Interpol were going to destroy him so that when Representative Ryan came, it was seen as a, as a great disaster. And by the time I interviewed these people, they had begun to put their lives back together again. And they were so terrified that if any association with the People's Temple was ever revealed to their co-workers or neighbors or anyone, that they would become ostracized, they would lose their jobs, they'd have to move. And they were truly frightened people. But they also knew 
that the defendant in that case was a guy named Larry Layton, had been so brainwashed, so deprived of food, so repeatedly and insidiously lied to, that the whole notion that he knew what he was doing was a stretch. So it was they were they were committed to helping, but they were so scared, and it was it was a very troubling case in that regard. You really felt for the people that you were speaking to, and you wanted to protect them. Um, but the case that really told me I was a PI was involved the murder of a teenage hustler in San Francisco named Teddy Gomez. And the first suspect the police latched onto on the basis of his vehicle matching a vehicle description that the hus- other hustlers on Polk Street had identified was a very, a now very prominent poet in San Francisco. Right then, then he was a young man teaching high school and had, had begun uh, publishing his poetry. His name is Francisco Alarcón. Well, SFPD latched onto him in a major way he was totally innocent. The, uh, the ultimate, I think it was about 10 years later, uh, the real uh, murderer was identified. But um, in that case, I had to walk Polk Street in the pouring rain interviewing teenage hustlers. And I remember just telling myself, oh, man, you, <laughs> you finally arrived as a PI in San Francisco. And so uh, that was the, that I felt was my real entree. Now, your first novel, the Devil's Redhead, spends quite a bit of time creating a kind of a sympathetic drug dealer. Tell us about your time in the drug culture as a PI and how it informed that novel and that character. Well, I was really uh, impressed, and I don't know other word to use, but I was really impressed by how interesting, low-key, non-criminal, for lack of a better word, and just basically, you know, wild but not evil, these marijuana smugglers that I represented, mostly in the early 80s, were. These were guys who'd come into the business uh, in the 70s, uh, pretty much just, you know, wild high school guys. In fact, most of them were from a group called the Coronado Company out of San Diego, who'd started smuggling pot from Mexico when they were in high school. They called themselves a company? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that was routine. That happened a lot in the business, actually. But um, when they finally got to the stage where they needed to make the next step up, none of them spoke Spanish, so they enlisted their Spanish teacher. <laughs> and uh, and he In high school? Yes, and he ultimately, he was <laughs> heading for a midlife crisis. And um, he ultimately became the snitch against them and uh, said that he had been debauched and seduced and, and betrayed by his poor underling students, and uh, they had led him astray. And so he informed on all of them and sent them to prison. And that was my first acquaintance, one with treacherous snitches and also with a a part of the world and a part of the drug culture that was really quite unique. These guys were not violent. Some were Vietnam vets, actually, who'd come back and just found they couldn't deal with everyday life and loved, you know, loved smuggling. It it was was adventurous. It was fun. It was just camaraderie with the guys on the beach. And um, and Abitangelo, my protagonist in The Devil's Redhead, is a composite of about five of those guys. And... um, who I've, and, and one in particular gave me what I consider to be the spine of Apatangelo. And he was a guy who had been a, a world-class swimmer and at the height of his uh, career had four apartments around the world and each one had nothing in it except a futon and a great stereo system. Because he wasn't in it for the money. He was in it for, for the adventure. He was in it for the guys. He was in it for the fun of it. And, just, and then one night he was with a, a friend, a doctor, and the doctor's wife, who was a nurse, they were having cocktails at the No Name Bar in Sausalito. It was a beautiful night. So let's go for a swim. So my guy goes out to his boat and cranks up the auxiliary motor, not realizing that gasoline had leaked into the bottom of the boat. 
the boat exploded. And suddenly all three of them are in the water. There's gasoline burning on the water. The doctor has been blinded in the blast, and he's hanging on to his life by a thread. And the doctor's wife is somewhere else in the water. Our, my guy, because he's an excellent swimmer, gets to a buoy and looks back. Now he realizes that if he sticks around, very likely he will be identified, and law enforcement in time will be able to figure out who was the owner of the boat, why is he here, who is this person, check th through his various aliases, and figure out who he really is. But that was about a fraction of a second. He realized he had to save his friend. So he called out to the, the doctor, told him to hang on. He went to the doctor's wife, rescued her, brought her back to the boy, swam through, and he got third-degree burns on half of his body doing this. Uh, swam uh, to the doctor, rescued him as well, and then waited for them to be um, rescued by the, uh, the authorities. And he was ultimately arrested about six months later. That did lead to the trail where they could finally begin to close the net around him. And I thought that someone with that background, you know, that... that the nonviolent smuggler, who also was capable of an incredible act of selfless heroism, was the kind of guy you could build a, a, a book around. And so uh, that just really inspired me. Well, it was a magnificent novel. Photography also plays a big part in The Devil's Redhead. How does photographic imagery, which is striking actually on the cover of that novel, play into your writing. Are you a photographer? No, I'm not. But I, it ends up that I'm related to one. And I didn't know this, actually, when I was writing Redhead. Um, I had friends who were photographers, and it just I was told by people in the business that if I didn't give Abitangelo some redeeming quality, it would be difficult to publish the book. And it was difficult to publish the book regardless. Uh, a number of publishers turned it down precisely because I, we had a, a, I don't know, a dope peddler as a protagonist, which was unfair, but that just is what happens. Mm -hmm. And um, so they said, well, you know, give him a redeeming quality. You know, like I didn't already have enough, but I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll make him artistic. And this was actually true. I knew a guy who was, uh, there was a numerous musicians in the marijuana trade. And, um, you know, some good, some some not quite so good. And uh, I, and I knew a buddy, who, uh, one of these guys, one of my clients, who was uh, also a photographer. So I, I that was one of the, the elements of the composite that I, created. But I also had another friend who was a photographer on whom I relied for a lot of the information in the book about photography. But the relative, it ends up, and this is relatively new, and I love this woman so much that I want to talk about her just a second, and her name is Consuelo Canega. She is my father's mother's cousin. And I learned about her when I was doing research for Done for a Dime, because it because I was doing research on Napa County. Turns out there was a history of Napa County written in 1898, by a woman named Tilly Kanega. Now, Kanega is spelled K-A-N-A-G-A. -A -A. Has a very odd pronunciation, which I know because it's my father's middle name. Okay. S so <laughs> I said, there's something here. It's too peculiar a name. It's Swiss. And so I wrote back to the my aunt, who is the person in the family who follows all this stuff. And I said, you know, is this woman related to us? Well, I get back a little package of information about the whole family. Tilly Kanega was the matriarch. Her husband was a prominent attorney in the area, and they had three children. One wrote children's books, one was a ventriloquist, and the other one was Consuelo Canega, who was a photographer, who, one of whose uh, photographs you'll find in the Family of Man collection, because she was uh, in the same crowd as Weston and Louise Dahl and Margaret Burke White and that crowd. And she was known for her portraits of African Americans. And they said she's not, she has no technique, but she makes the most incredible portraits of human faces ever. 
And as soon as I discovered her, I also found out that there was a showing of her work at the Ansel Adams uh, Museum, the gallery, excuse me, in San Francisco by just an odd quirk of fate for me. And I went there, and not only did they have her photographs, but there was a trip in Paris that she had made where she didn't have a photograph with her. I mean, she didn't have a camera with her, excuse me. And so she was so desperate to capture faces, she did watercolors. And they're almost childlike in technique, but the faces are faces only an adult could come up with. And they had these displayed next to her photographs, and it was a stunning exhibit. And, um, and I have just fallen in love with this woman. It ends up they had a huge retrospective at the Brooklyn Museum of, of Art about her. I have the book from that, and she's sort of become a muse. And so now I was going to you know, bring Abitangelo along in, in further books anyway, but um, now I'm obsessed with it. So he's definitely going to be continuing uh, <laughs> in, in further books. Now, pain plays a big part in Devil's Redhead, both physical and emotional. Yet it's also an impassioned love story. How do you use mystery genre conventions and avoid them to create this story of pain and love? Um, well, you focus on the pain and love and, and don't worry about the conventions. I mean, the best way to screw up a good murder mystery is to worry about whether it's a murder mystery. You know, I mean, just avoid it. Think about your people. Think about your characters as real people. What would they do? What do they think? What do they feel? And um, my story arc for that book really was sort of thinking um, about, you know, what's the standard story arc? The descendant to hell to rescue, you know, the loved one, whether it's, and the classic of that is Orpheus and Eurydice. But um, I had my wife, who passed away two and a half years ago, but she was alive when I was writing the book. Um, she would absolutely not permit me to make my female character as passive as Eurydice had been. I mean, you know, she said, no, she wouldn't do that. She'd try this. She'd try that. And that was an incredible influence on me. So I came up with an alternative story, which was, what would happen if Orpheus descended into hell only to find out that somehow Eurydice had already finagled her way out of hell, um, you know, with a demon in tow, and now he's in hell, has to get out, and has to find her with this, you know, underworld creature, you know, in tow. So that was kind of where the story arc came from. Um, the pain was, I had to make a decision about violence. And, and I take this very seriously. I mean, private investigators don't carry guns. A lot of people don't know this. And because of what they read in books and see on TV, I mean, it's, it's not a job that you're allowed to use force or violence. We're not there to, to assert order. Um, we're simply there to find people, uh, talk to them, and write it up. And if they have testimony which is valuable, to see if they're willing to testify and then just kind of guide them through the, uh, the system so they don't feel spat out and used by the system, which is what most witnesses feel like. So I wanted to, to accurately portray what violence does to people. And, um, so, and rather than have it either off camera or, or gratuitous, I really felt that I needed to portray that accurately. And that in particular, these, as I said, these old school marijuana guys, they were not into guns. They were not into violence. Somebody showed up to steal a load, they'd just say, take it. <laughs> you know, There's another one down the road. I don't need it. I don't need the grief. And um, what had happened in the PI world is about 10 years later, I found, I, I mentioned this to my boss. I said, you know, we're just not getting the kind of clients we used to. These, you know, Things are decidedly heavier than they used to be. And he said, yeah, if those, if those former guys had, were still in the business, they'd be betrayed or killed. And that, for me, was the core idea. How would a person from that older school, you know, the gentleman marijuana smuggler, so to speak, how would he deal with 
the much heavier, much more criminal guys that had completely taken over the business. And to do that, you had to portray just what that heaviness meant. And that meant a lot of physical violence and a lot of pain. Your new novel, Done for a Dime, has more elements that you'd expect to find in a mystery novel. You've got a detective seeking to solve a murder, corrupt politicians, cagey criminals, wily lawyers. Well, that was because I started writing it when we were having trouble selling Redhead, and I thought, well, maybe I'll be a little more conventional with this next one, with a detective and everything. I swear to God, I will never do it again. It is insanely difficult to write about police officers doing their jobs in a way that hasn't been done by somebody somewhere, sometime. It was really difficult. You do it very well. There's so many details that inform Murchison's... um investigation, the way he deals with the suspects, was that researched or made up? No, that was researched. Um, Interrogation has taken a real decidedly different turn since the mid-70s. Nobody does good cop, bad cop anymore. Everybody sees through it. It's too obvious. They've really gone to, instead, um, exploiting the vulnerabilities of the suspect and sort of, you know, buddying up and constantly letting them know that you know just about everything you need to know. It's time for them to get on board. And it's what's fascinating about the technique is that for about the first 10 to 15 minutes, you're not, a, you're not supposed to let the suspect say a word. If he begins to talk to you, you shut him up, which is interesting. You're trying to get him to talk, but really you're, you're just there to so control the environment. And it's amazing. I, when I was reading this book, I thought, that's, uh, it's almost counterintuitive, but it ends up, they've, they've really worked this stuff out. And, uh, and I confirmed it with a couple of cops that I had been, uh, that gave me information for the book and were helping me with it. And uh, so that was one eye opener, but yeah. And then the others, a lot, there was a great book called Understanding Police Culture, which was written by a sociologist out of Boise State named John Crank, oddly enough. And um, it was great in just uh, studying the, you know, the mindset of the cop in a police force doing his job and how under siege he feels from, from all directions, from his superiors, from his fellow cops, from the, from the public, from the press, from the courts. Some of it justified, some of it not. But there's a whole culture of paranoia, even in good cops. You know, that, and, and now that I've befriended you know, several of them, it's interesting to see the unique ways each of them deal with that. Um, and so th- there was that whole idea of, of trying to see the cop as a human being in this cauldron of, of scrutiny and, uh, and potential betrayal uh, that, that really made me want to write the book. Your characters, all of them, are just incredibly detailed. Their motivations are clear. You have a large cast of characters in this book. How do you keep the balance, your levels of characterization, in such a large cast? Uh, I'm not sure it's conscious. And in some ways, you always make sure that you well, you always have to be clear about your major characters. You have to know them as well as you know you know yourself. Um, and it's not just knowing them. You have to respect them. And in a lot of ways, you have to love them. That sounds silly, but it's really true. You really got to love your characters. And then you got to remember that your secondary characters are there for accents. It's sort of like orchestration. You realize that, you know, some characters are the melody and other characters are just little accent tones or they provide harmony for a while and they disappear and um but still if you if you don't focus on them as real people it they won't do the job they'll it'll seem cliched and flat you've really got to give them all 
the life they deserve, even if they have that minor role, or otherwise the scene will just be flat. Do you create dossiers for your characters, or do you just spew the prose off on the page and it falls there perfectly? Oh, yeah, that happens every day. Um, that never happens, just so everybody knows. But it's, it's a little back and forth. I always do huge backgrounds on my major characters. And I'm, when I mean huge is I, I do you know, psychological, sociological, and physical. You want to know how they look. You want to know how they talk. I add things like, you know, what's something in their speech pattern that they repeat? We all have little ticks we use all the time. And, um, excuse me for a second. I also want to know um, who their girlfriends were in high school. You know, what was the, the most shameful moment in their life? What is, this is from Waldo Salt, the screenwriter, what is the backstory wound? What is the thing that harmed them the most, which has formed them most psychologically? And in a sense, gives them the lesson they have to learn. Uh, for Murchison, it is the, the death of his brother in Vietnam. And his brother was the one person in his life who, with whom he felt a true, a true psychological and emotional bond. And he's never recovered from it. He's never known how to really reconnect with the world. And uh, so those are the things that are, that, are, that are key. Sometimes the secondary characters just come. I don't know where they come from. I, I, just, I owe them use. But um, and other times I really do have to draft them out and say, you know, or they're, they're composites of people. For example, there's a secondary character, I Miss Carvella Grimes. She's a oh, wonderful character. She's about an 80-year-old African-American woman, school teacher, never married, because her, uh, her fiancé died in the Port Chicago blast in 1944. And um, she was based on a, um, in part on a woman I had met in a, a uh, probate action that my wife and I had had. And she had been head of the Democratic Party in Vallejo and was very vocal and very sweet and very smart. And um, I was just really blown away by her. I just thought she was an incredible person. And I'd also heard about a lady who was known as the jazz lady in, um, in the projects in San Francisco, I think in, in Bay Point, or Hunter's Point, I mean. And, um, and it was a sad story because she had always invited kids in after school to listen to jazz and to help them with their homework and to tutor. And then one of the kids she had helped came by one day, tried to rob her, and then killed her. And I was just so touched by that because this woman had tried so hard to help her community. That sort of, again, a composite. I put these two people together and then just physically imagined her tiny because she's so huge in spirit. And I just thought that would make an interesting contrast. And, and then she began to talk to me. It's, it's, this is hard to describe, but sometimes characters just start talking to you. And you feel more like a scribe than an author. One of the most interesting characters in your book is the community itself. Rio Mirada. How did you create that? Uh, I owe a lot to my own hometown, Vallejo, but not completely. Um, physically, I went to the Vallejo Maritime and Naval Museum and tried to find out a lot of the, the local history. You know, how had the town grown up? In particular, it had exploded during World War II. You know, so many workers came from the South to help with the shipyards during World War II. And there had been federal housing in the place I've, I've actually located this, this fictitious town. But they tore it down after the war. And I just asked myself, well, you know, if they hadn't torn it down, what would the town be like? And, um, and then I had a friend of mine who's head of the Audubon Society locally. And I said, well, take, take me out into the sloughs and, you know, and, sh and show me around. You know, what's, what thrives out here? You know, what kind of birds do we have we got out here? What, you know, what are the plants? And then he also began to tell me stories from when he was a kid. And he would come out and he'd hunt with, you know, his friends and stuff or he'd, 
Um, and the, the story about water skiing along the sloughs, you know, when they're completely swacked on beer, you know, that was that was one of my buddy's stories, and I just loved it. And I had to, I just asked him if I could use it. He said sure. And um, and then I just began to sort of I I studied newspaper articles from around the Bay Area for about 18 months, and uh, stories in particular about development problems and the too cozy relationship between developers and building departments that's almost routine around the Bay Area. And um, that problem and also the problem of the closing down of industrial bases in towns like Richmond and Oakland and El Sobrante and Martinez and, and Vallejo with the shipyard closing and uh, how that changes the town and what kind of pressures it puts on a town. And I just kind of threw that together and sort of I, I, I got my town. As Hammett did in Red Rain, you talk about a community under assault by these redevelopment agencies, real estate developers, as well as drugs and violence. Yeah, well, the drug thing in particular, I one of the, the reasons I wanted to write about the pressures on property owners is that one of the, the cases I worked on as a PI was down in Los Angeles, and uh, the defendant was a member of the uh, South Central Crips, but he was also the only person you know that I that we knew of investing in little fixer uppers in South Central. I mean, he was buying these things for like sixty to ninety grand. He had a friend who was a handyman. The guy would fix them up. They'd turn them around. You know, for you know a decent profit, but usually like about a hundred and ten something like that. He had a real estate agent involved who had been a nun. <laughs> I'm not making that up. She'd been a nun, and um, she tried to work for Century Twenty One in Long Beach. And learned that white people wouldn't buy from her, so you know she was you know ber- and she just had to find you know customers someplace, and and this guy came along and she sold his houses for him, and and you know probably made a, a few decisions that weren't all that great. But I, the thing that that killed me about this case was I wasn't dealing with thugs, you know, like I was seeing on TV. I was dealing with very ordinary middle class people trying to make a buck in a diff- difficult environment and actually improving their community in the process. Of course, the capital for this was crack cocaine, and that was you know, and that just that just killed me. I was sitting there going, you know, where? You know, and that was what you realized. The real problem with the ghetto was where's the money? Who's going to capitalize anything in the ghetto? You know, white America ain't going to do it. So that that just you know, I just thought, I don't know. There was something about that that was so down to earth that I just I had to use it. And and the the character Long Walk Mooney is is based largely on this individual that we defended. Down for a Dime also works in the world of music. Are you a musician? Do you I, know musicians? Yeah, no, I was a musician. I uh, I played bass in the band because they already had a guitarist. I did a couple solo things back in the old folk days when you could actually get a gig doing that. And um, we were, you know, a relatively mediocre band, but we, you know, we played through the Midwest. We did bars in you know, like Kokomo, Indiana, and Midland, Michigan, and Beckley, West Virginia, and other hot spots. Yeah, but uh, it was a gig, you know, and it was fun to do. And I met a lot of cocktail waitresses who inspired my character Shell uh, in The Devil's Redhead. And um, but I learned, you know, and I've met a lot of musicians. I've always been fond of musicians and uh, people who helped me with the book. Right, the one is a is a jazz agent, and uh, and so I, you know, I just sort of, whenever I had a question, I would hit them up on it. But I've I've hung around the music scene for about thirty years. Talk about your influences as a mystery writer. Well, the I tell people that the four books 
I try to read at least a part of every year are Dog Soldiers by Robert Stone, God's Pocket by Pete Dexter, which I discovered is also a huge influence on Dennis Lehane, mm-hmm. as is Clockers by Richard Price. In fact, Lehane says that uh, The Wanderers by Richard Price is what made him become a novelist. And then the fourth book I'm rereading right now is Homicide by David Simon. It's nonfiction, but it's, it's the one that TV series was based on. It's a fantastic book. It's a stunning book. Um, uh, absolutely the best depiction of officers, of police, uh, you know, uh, police detectives working day to day in their jobs I've, I've ever read. And actually that's the reason I like Clockers as well. I think that's one of the best depictions of a cop, a working cop in fiction, period. And so those four books have always been sort of my, uh, those are my saints, so to speak. But then uh, among current writers, I love Daniel Woodrow, um, who writes, as they say, Ozark Noir. There's two British writers, John Harvey and Jake Arnott, who I just think the world of. Um, I like Lehane a lot, and he's also a wonderful guy, but he's a wonderful writer. And um, that's, that's, that's a parcel there. That's, and the problem is, when you're in the business, you begin meeting a lot of people. So I have, now I have all these friends who are writers, and trust me, that the number of books I, I mean to read, and they're just piling up um, unconscionably. Your writing has a searing, almost lyrical pain behind it. Could you talk about events in your personal life that help shape that? Well, I've had um, both my my favorite brother and my wife died young. Um, John died of AIDS, my brother, at age 39. And, uh, and Terry, my wife, died at 46 of ovarian cancer. And she died right about the time we sold Devil's Redhead. Um, so her death didn't inform the Devil's Redhead. I do believe it probably plays a great part in Done for a Dime. It, there's something that happens when you write a book. There's the things that you know you're writing about, and then there's the things you don't know you're writing about. And the thing I didn't know I was writing about in Done for a Dime that didn't become clear to me until I was finished with it was I was writing about survivor guilt and what it's like to have to endure the aftermath of the death of someone close to you. And Murchison deals with that. Toby Marchand, the son of the victim, deals with it. And so does his girlfriend, Nadia. They all deal with that. You know, what could I have done? What might I have done instead? You know, how am I supposed, in particular, how am I supposed to live my life now? And um, I didn't see that. Uh, I didn't really have my finger on that pulse until afterwards when I looked at it. I thought, oh, so that was, that was what you were fi- trying to deal with when you were writing this thing. So that's th- that was very much a part of this book. And, and also, one of the reasons I wanted to do that with Murchison is the more I read about cops and the more I got to know them, the more I realized that this dirty, hairy idea of the invincible cop, you know, who's the only thing he ever feels is angry, was a crock. Um, I've got a buddy of mine who uh, works SWAT and actually had to shoot somebody at 10 yards, and the guy was looking at him. He said he didn't sleep for a week afterwards. He said, you know, it's incredibly hard to kill somebody. It's not something, you know, that you're trained to do when you do well because it's your job. It's something that just eats at you when you have to do it. Most cops don't like hurting people. They really don't. And I, I, I wanted to portray some of that, that, you know, some of the things they have to deal with, it eats at them. And I wanted to portray that a lot in this book. You did so quite well. Could you tell our listeners about your writing process? If I only knew what it was. Um, <laughs> I start with the characters. I mean, the characters to me, uh, there's a great line. I, I think it ultimately comes from, from Robert Stone, where he says, I write for people who are lonely and who want to share in the life of my characters. 
And um, I, I want people to be able to enter the world of these people and to, and to share in their world. And so for me, that's always the beginning. I usually have an idea as well. I mean, like an, sort of an idea of a story and a theme I want to pursue. Um, the theme in Done for a Dime that I started with was um, how the lust for property can just pervert every decision within a city. I mean, it's, it's almost happened in, in Vallejo. With, uh, and, and it's continuing. There's a, there has been a real problem with redevelopment. Uh, we've just had a very bad uh, building director for 30 years. And uh, as a result, we've got about five half-empty strip malls in town. And somebody's made a bundle off these, but sure as hell isn't the city. Um, so that was one the, you know, the theme I was after. The story I knew was going to involve a huge fire because my nephew is an arson investigator, and I just thought it was obscene that I would have this great source of information and not use him. He lives in New Zealand, unfortunately, so this was largely an email process. But um, I asked him very early on, uh, what would it take to burn down a neighborhood? And he had an immediate answer, <laughs> which was somewhat disconcerting, but it's, uh, it's good that it doesn't happen uh, any more often than it does. Um, and then I just began with the characters. And, and again, they sort of, uh, characters, they start as silhouettes and then become more and more real as you address them more carefully. And I, it's... I don't know how to say it more than that. Just the more you write about them, the more real they become. You write from a lot of different points of view. Black men, white boys, black boys, black women, criminals, drug addicts, crooked and straight cops, remorseless murderers. How do you achieve the variety of voices required by these people? Functional schizophrenia. Um, I don't know. I, I, I be, uh, to be honest with you, I really don't know. It's like some people are tone deaf. Um, other people have perfect pitch. I'm just... I don't know. This is just kind of a gift, and I'm, 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 I have an ear for people, an inner ear for the way they talk, and in particular, and it's funny. Elmore Leonard said this. He says, "I always know, I've got my character. Want to know how he talks?" And he says, that "With my books, that's the most important thing. I can't have a character who doesn't talk because because that's what my characters do." <laughs> so I think that's really important. What are you working on now? Well, oddly enough, I've been in Shanghai, away from my third novel that I was already ready, geared up, and ready to go. Uh, to a nonfiction project that, regrettably, I can't discuss because it's about something which is in process right now. Um, and because of that, I'm actually rethinking the third novel. I might do s another smaller novel that I could work on simultaneously with the nonfiction. The, the third book that I was working on was going to be a big book, and I was going to bring Abitangelo back for a major ordeal in his life. But um, now that may become the fourth book, and the third book may be a much smaller uh, sort of a psychological thriller. Um, where do we go in San Francisco? What bar do we want to go to to hang out and overhear some cop talk? Oh, cop talk. I don't know. Because San Francisco cops haven't been the guys I've hung out with. I've been hanging out with the local guys. And then I've met a guy in, in Phoenix, and he's a, he's a former cop. Now he's in, in uh, private security work. And i got to tell you, he's also the funniest human being I've ever met. <laughs> Second, there's, the two, two, there's two cops I've met. One was in Las Vegas and this guy, and they're absolutely the funniest guys I've ever met. And um, But I don't know. I did, you, I'm the wrong guy to ask on that one because I haven't really, uh, I don't know that many guys on SFPD. We've been speaking with David Corbett, author of The Devil's Redhead and Done for a Dime. My name is Rick Cleffel. We've been listening to Fine Print. Thanks, David. Thank you, Rick.